have seen the regulatory flexibilities that we've announced over the last couple of months. Yes. That we've really moved years in the future in terms of telehealth and access to that. And that's across a broad range of things in terms of reimbursement flexibilities, in terms of regulatory flexibilities, including things like changes or guidance on HIPAA that says that you can use things like FaceTime or Skype mm. to communicate rather than those sort of more specialized telehealth programs. Hello and welcome to a very special episode 64 of Rural Matters, the leading podcast focusing on all things rural education, business and health in the United States. I'm your host, Michelle Rathman, and I want to thank you to all of our return listeners and subscribers and welcome to our first timers. You've picked a really good one to join us. Um, as you know, our mission here on Rural Matters is to increase awareness, inform discussion and promote intelligent dialogue on the most important issues facing rural stakeholders today. Uh, some housekeeping notes, of course, you know you can listen to Rural Matters on iTunes, Google, Stitcher Play, or wherever you like to get your podcast. We certainly do encourage you to subscribe so you can receive those new episodes automatically, and we hope that you will tell your colleagues and friends about us and all the uh, great conversations we're having. If you have any questions, or if you'd like to suggest a guest or talk about an episode, you can email us at podcasttoday at gmail.com. So as I said, this is another really special episode of Rural Matters because it's part two of our four-part series on rural economic and community development. In part one, you heard me speak with Thomas Kimsey about rural lending and assistance during COVID-19. Um, Kimsey, as you recall from that first conversation, is with Thomas USAF, and they are also our collaborators and underwriters for this series. In today's episode, we're going to talk about what the federal government is doing to help rural communities, and we're thankful to have with us a top official, a very busy person from the Department of Health and Human Services, to talk about what the department is doing on rural workforce issues and the four major areas that HHS, uh, their rural task force, is focusing on. All of this, of course, in the middle of a pandemic. So I am so pleased to welcome Eric Pargan, Deputy Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services to the podcast. Uh, I do want to share with you, uh, Secretary Hargan, that I know you where you're from. I'm in Illinois. And I know that you're from Mound, Illinois. And I used to work in Metropolis with their hospital. So you might know that little community. Okay. Yep, on Massac Memorial. Massac um, Memorial. Yep. I know Massac Memorial. My uh, my uh, one of my older sisters was a trauma nurse at Massac Memorial. Oh my goodness! I worked with them for about five or six years, so we might have some stories to tell. And if if you go to Metropolis, you have to pose with Superman. That's all I can tell you. Yes, and the good Superman, not the bad Superman. But anyway, it depends on how well you know Metropolis. The, yeah, but I have a I have a uh, sister and one of my cousins also nurses at. Uh, Oh, my goodness. I bet you we have a few people in common. So thank you. I, I, as I said, I know you're busy. You've got a lot to tend to. You know, we had a kind of a different conversation planned because when I first um, met you and kind of met you at the end of your session at the uh, National Rural Health Policy, I was there uh, doing some work on the podcast and I hosted a panel on uh, our rural health, our rural hospital closure crisis. And of course, um, we were learning about all the great initiatives that you all were taking. And then here we've got this pandemic that has really, I don't even know what the words are anymore. I mean, the, the, the impact on our rural practices and our rural hospitals has been so significant and so unique. So I know we want to talk about that. But yeah. first, I, I just want you to tell us a little bit more about, um, you know, we know we're, we've talked about the fact that you're from Mound, Illinois, so you've got some rural roots. But I know that you shared with the Policy Institute uh, group this past February that getting it right 
is personal for you. So I want to ask you, what does getting it right, what does that mean to you and why is it important? Well, you know, you start with kind of a fundamental here for those of us who work in healthcare and who are, you know, coming from a rural background as I do. You know, I, I grew up on a farm outside a town of 800 mm-hmm. in deep southern Illinois. Uh, so I got to see a close-up look at rural health care, really through my mother's career. Uh, she was an x-ray technician for 58 years wow. uh, in our local, our local hospital, uh, you know, so 1953 to 2011. Uh, so, you know, seeing that up close, uh, growing up underfoot in a, in a rural hospital, now a clinic, uh, sort of gives you an idea, I think a grounding in the, the possibilities and then also the challenges that uh, is part of rural health care. Now, you start with kind of a bedrock issue for those of us here at Health and Human Services at HHS. You know, better health is obviously the fundamental goal. You start with something simple like that. That's the vision kind of the president has for the healthcare system. Now, what we're trying to do is to see what the, the sort of vital importance that health holds for every American. I heard you talking about sort of the three areas that you focus on on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that healthcare is one of those. All of this has been thrown into sharp relief by the coronavirus outbreak, even more so uh, that we need to get access to the care that we need to live long, healthy lives. But it is a special challenge for Americans who live in rural areas. So uh, there are sort of basically four particular areas that the administration is focused on improving rural health. And they're, they're very top line here, but I'll go into a little bit more detail. Um, one is uh, preventing death and disease. That would seem obvious if you're trying to get better health. But we seek to tackle health challenges that we think can be mitigated if we focus more directed attention on them. So you look at things where you can have an impact on particular areas of death and disease. So two specific areas of focus are the opioid crisis mm-hmm. and maternal health both of which have real salience in rural America, uh, where you see a lot, of, a lot of disparities in maternal health between the rural and urban settings. And the opioid crisis obviously in many ways started uh, in rural America, in rural parts of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a silent crisis as long as it was in rural America, right. to be clear. Uh, it became a national crisis when it got out of rural America. At least that's where the focus was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one. Those are the impactable uh, challenges, health challenges. Two is creating sustainable rural models. So we are concerned about the closure of rural hospitals. As I told you, I grew up in a rural hospital. It's no longer a hospital. Mm-hmm. It's a clinic. Um, we're working to understand how we can support those rural hospitals. But I think we have to think broadly about what rural health care may look like in the future, that the right sustainable model for health care in an area may not always be that traditional 1950s, 1960s hospital model. Uh, we know that there are some longstanding structural challenges and payments for rural hospitals, including HHS's own wage index formula. Uh, and we recognize that there's an important balance to strike here, uh, but we know rural hospitals shouldn't be disadvantaged for not being located in a highly populated area. So we're looking at kind of the systems challenges posed by trying to have a hospital model or a clinic model that doesn't entirely attempt to replicate a model that is perhaps no longer appropriate to rural areas. And in fact, it may not be appropriate to many areas, uh, as we're seeing revolutions in sort of systems, healthcare systems all over the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, third element is improving access through technology and innovation. Because when you 
when you think about the kind of systems innovation, you know, do we move to, which kind of models do we move to in kind of the place where we get care? You have to talk about uh, improving access to care through these systems, and that leads us to technological innovation. Uh, new technology uh, can be a real game changer for improving healthcare in rural areas. There are technologies like telehealth, remote patient monitoring. Uh, these are helping bridge the gap for rural patients, and they're getting access to care that they haven't gotten before. In many cases, not just access to care, but access to more specialty care, more individualized, different kinds of care than were really ever available. You know, you come from a town of 800 people, you're never going to get 800 different kinds of specialists to move to that town. Yes, yeah, so that's a struggle. I mean, just say, you know, I, I work with rural hospitals. I have uh, one hospital that I work with in Oregon. They have 600 um, employees. That's critical access on steroids, as we call it. And they started their clinic through specialty practices. And I, I tell them all the time how incredibly unique they are because you are right. I mean, we, you know, when we talk about visiting specialists, it might be one specialist that comes in to do cataract surgery once a month. You know, and, and that's just, um, you know, some might call that access, but to somebody living in that community that might not feel um, that that is the case. And I just want to touch on the technology piece, because you did say earlier, I mean, our 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 focus here is on all the things that connect rural education, business and health and technology. I think we can all agree that in this crisis, we've really seen the need to make sure that healthcare and and access to broadband uh, for example, that those two are on the same plate at the same time, because you can't introduce telehealth uh, initiatives if you don't have the connectivity. Exactly. So we need to, you saw that in the, you may have seen the regulatory flexibilities that we've announced over the last couple of months, Yes. that we've really moved years in the future uh, in terms of telehealth and access to that. And that's across a broad range of things in terms of, of uh, reimbursement flexibilities, in terms of regulatory flexibilities, including things like changes or, re or guidance on HIPAA that says that you can use things like FaceTime or Skype mm. to communicate rather than those sort of more specialized telehealth programs uh, that were available, that were being used in many cases before. So you look at that, those are kind of flexibilities that I think have really opened up the area of telehealth, which was had been available in rural areas here and there. Uh, but really, I think that the entire uh, the entire area of telehealth and telemedicine has become much more supercharged in the last couple of months as patients have gotten access either through audio uh, calls or uh, as well as uh, kind of the, the virtual calls through smartphones or laptops or other kinds of technology, which can be very good for certain kinds of medicine. And they, they can be uh, entirely kind of be the way in which patients can get care. Other areas, you're obviously not going to set a broken bone. Uh, by telemedicine, there has to be a role for uh, the in-person clinical visit for many, many things. Uh, but there's a there certainly has been a, a huge increase in telehealth and telemedicine. And I think it's been has been almost universally welcomed uh, in the area. And I think that's going to lead to a lot of innovation in and of itself. The fact that we have so many people now wanting to do telehealth and telemedicine, seeing the utility of it, uh, it's going to lead to a lot more focus on that and a lot more development of it, which I think has got to be welcomed. Your point is well taken about broadband issues. Obviously, the underlying sort of infrastructure in rural America uh, is is something that leaves much to be desired in many areas. There are parts of rural America that have perfectly good broadband service, but there are lots that don't, mm -hmm. uh, and that's going to that's going to really have to be service kind of the underpinning for a, a broader sea change in uh, rural access to telehealth and telemedicine, at least in any any more sophisticated way. 
Yeah, and I've seen some some models, for example, we work on National Rural Health Day and we write about these great things happening in rural America where this is concerned. And for example, a lot of rural providers, uh, hospitals are understanding their need to innovate. You know, they're starting rural health clinics within schools that are 100%, you know, powered, if you will, by telehealth. And those are the kinds of things that I'm hearing you say, yeah, we have to be innovative doesn't mean just in this clinical space that we've built these four walls, it's bringing it out to the community. And uh, I think many of these things that you're talking about, if we don't get community stakeholder engagement, it's kind of DOA, if you will, because we can't just rely on our rural health providers. I, I wonder what your thoughts are about that to, you know, kind of take the lead and do it all by themselves. It takes a lot of effort for these things to move a dial um, in a community of 800 or 26,000, yeah. right? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we are, I mean, you can see this broadly in the United States in general. You know, there's a move from these kind of like general hospitals to much to a model of distributed care mm-hmm. where, you know, people go to clinics and it, all kinds of offsite outpatient uh, types of uh, places to get care at this point. That's, that's something that can be useful any place, whether it's rural care, to look at those models and see how people want to access care. And then add to that the technological innovation. So both the system side, you know, is there a way to kind of get care out there into the community in a different way and then sort of supercharge that with the technological innovations that are that are coming? I think we can we can really uh, move away from the, the model that is that is having a lot of problems right now that we're we're and we're, we're going to try to make sure that we we help that you know the providers that are that are struggling right now but also see what we can do in terms of spurring uh innovation whether it's on the system side or it's the or the technology side or uh the workforce side uh, frankly there's i mean there's another element to this besides these impactful health challenges besides the the uh, creating sustainable rural models of healthcare besides technology and innovation there's also the workforce side you know we have to have a healthy and robust rural workforce, you know, like I was saying, you can't really set a broken bone by telemedicine. You have to have someone there on on the spot to do these things. You know, I saw that firsthand with my mother. A dedicated workforce makes all the difference. It makes all the difference in the quality of care you receive in a rural setting. And their ability to be able to be supported and provide care in that area is very, it's extremely important. As I said, you know, my my background in rural healthcare goes back five generations, back to Doc Hargan in uh, Pulaski County, Illinois, where I grew up uh, in the late 1800s. So, uh, you know, we've seen all along in my family um, the the vital role that uh, individuals make in in both sustaining the health of the people around them, but also sustaining the community itself as a community. Yeah, it's a great point. The workforce, uh, the workforce uh, is so important. I'm also working with the, the National Rural Recruitment and Retention Network. And, you know, we, we talk about health profession shortage areas. And I do want to talk to you about that. We're going to take a really quick break. And we also need to just touch really quickly on um, some of the really um, great news uh, for many people that have came out on May 1st uh, with a $10 billion relief fund. And I'd like to just talk to you for a moment about that if we have time yet today about how that was allocated. And uh, if you just stay with us. We'll be right back with our conversation. This episode of Rural Matters is sponsored by Thomas USAF. And of course, a special thanks to the Thomas USAF group, who is our collaborator and sponsor for this entire four-part series. Whether you're looking to finance your business or sell your loan in the secondary market, 
Thomas USAF Group has the expertise to provide extraordinary results for its clients. With 40 years of experience working in government-guaranteed loan space, their team is uniquely positioned to offer exceptional services to meet your business needs. The established 40-year relationships they have developed with their lending partners and USDA, SBA, National Footprint, and seasoned and knowledgeable staff enable them to help their clients achieve successful results. For more information, visit thomasusaf.com. That's thomasusaf.com. Now let's get back to our discussion. Okay, we're back and thankful to have uh, the time of Deputy Secretary Eric Hargan with us today talking about all sorts of things that HHS is doing, um, not just in response to COVID, but we would be remiss if we wouldn't say, listen, some of these issues we're talking about, we've had to press the fast forward button because now we're seeing innovation plays a significant role in the way that we deliver healthcare in rural communities. So on May 1st, you announced, and I was so grateful to see this come through, that how that $10 billion of relief funds would be allocated and some of that to rural. So if you could just give our audience a breakdown of, of what that looked like, how much came to rural and um, how the funds were distributed. Sure. Yeah, we announced uh, that was a you know a, a bit ago ten billion dollars in funding for rural providers, mm. uh, which, believe it or not, is more than the eight billion dollar ask that was relayed to us from external stakeholders. Uh, that you know we're very much dedicated in this administration to making sure that we support uh, rural providers. In fact, before the CARES Act even passed, the very first external call I made was to the NRHA uh, mm. to talk to them about about this. Uh, you know, I I think what you know, as you and your audience already know, I know, uh, rural hospitals were already operating on thin margins before COVID-19 spread to our country, margins about half that of urban hospitals on average. Uh, and that's why we sent out $10 billion to help rural, sort of four categories of rural providers, rural acute care hospitals, critical access hospitals, rural health clinics, and community health centers located in rural areas. And uh, how we did that was all rural health clinics and rural community health centers received a base support of no less than $100,000 each with additional payments for rural health clinics based on operating expenses. And then rural acute care general hospitals and critical access hospitals received a base support no less than $1 million with additional payments, again, based on operating expenses. Yeah, that was such a really, I'm on the chatterboxes out here as well. And I have so many hospital CEOs that, that could finally get a good night's sleep knowing that that was coming to them. So, of course, during the pandemic, we know that there are other pressing and persistent health issues, uh, rural and under-resourced. That's my new favorite word. I, I hate to say underserved because we know so many people are serving them so well, but they might be under-resourced. Um, they're facing, you know, so many other issues that, that they didn't have to the luxury to press the pause button on. So if, if you could just share with us what some of the other health initiatives um, that HHS is focusing on that specifically impact rural America, such as you talked about earlier, the opioid crisis and maternal morbi uh, morbidity. Is there anything specific that you can provide? Yeah. Sure. So, you know, as part of these overall rural health efforts, we have focused on, as I said, those major public health issues uh, that disproportionately affect rural communities. And as you mentioned, and as I mentioned earlier, the opioid crisis, disparities in maternal health. Uh, for instance, on topic of substance use disorders specifically, data from CDC shows that in, in recent years, rural communities faced an increased burden of overdose deaths despite generally lower rates of illicit drug use. Hmm. So despite 
rural areas having a lower overall drug overdose death rate in 2017, uh, the, you look at the urban-rural differences in drug overdose death rates that really varied widely by the type of drug that was involved. So rural areas see more deaths from prescription opioids than urban areas. Uh, we've also seen that meth use and associated overdose deaths uh, have a serious problem, uh, pose a serious problem in rural areas. So uh, the, there's a, just a tremendously broad gap between drug overdose deaths involving psychostimulants like meth uh, with abuse potential. Uh, so we've made investments in several aspects of the opioid response. So uh, we've sent money to uh, around opioid-related poisonings through support to all 55 national poison control centers, expanded accesses in 12, expanded access in 1,200 community health centers. So, and, and you know, a lot of those are really serving, are serving rural communities, including mm -hmm. the one that my late mother uh, worked at. We also have the Rural Communities Opioid Response Program, that's our corp. That initiative continues to grow. Uh, they've awarded more than $157 million to communities uh, over the past two years, and that's spread out over 1,000 rural counties uh, in 47 states. Uh, you know, that, that's an area, again, like I said, that, that issue of drug overdose deaths that, and drug abuse generally, that was in places when I grew up mm -hmm. uh, in Mounds. That was already there, but it was, it was just part of the background of, uh, of, of life. Uh, yes. In many ways, I'm a rural I, Minnesota girl. I mean, my family back in the 70s. I mean, it was a, it was an issue. It was something that we didn't talk about, and um, we could say maybe that that's why we where why we got to where we are because we weren't talking about it. And I'm appreciative to learn what you all are doing to help address it because we we cannot continue this um, stigma. You know, the conversation has got to be at the table. Well, we've, I mean, we've really tried to, and we've gotten a great deal of uptake from the community health centers on getting them to embrace medication-assisted treatment, or MAT. Mm -hmm. uh, that is uh, kind of what we think of as the gold standard in getting the new drugs, the new interventions that are going to help uh, correct this. You know, we saw the first downtake, the downtick in drug overdose deaths, first time in over 20 years. Uh, recently, and believe it or not, a rise in Americans' overall life expectancy for the first time in three years. Overall, Americans' life expectancy had been driven down three years in a row because of drug overdose deaths. Isn't that something? Mm. Amazing. It Sorry. had a huge impact on it. We were not talking about a pandemic then, not then anyway. Uh, we weren't talking about the Spanish flu. We weren't talking about the 1957 or the 1968 epidemics or a war. We were talking about drug overdose deaths. Uh, and that that is a uh, that's a terrible fact. And I'm hoping that when the kind of the cloud lifts over this pandemic, uh, we're going to resume the progress that this administration had already put on foot, starting to bend the curve uh, in the drug overdose deaths. And I will say, you know, you look at rural areas and our ability to get information about rural areas about drug overdose deaths. I was I was recently talking with some uh, professors from. Uh, Southern Illinois, and they were saying, uh, they said they were showing me all the statistics for uh, ER visits for drug overdose, uh, drug overdoses. And I, they said, oh, look, your home county, Pulaski County is doing very well. Uh, it's so many low, uh, low percentage of people uh, having ER visits for drug overdose problems. And I said, oh, I can tell you why. Uh, there's no ER in a surrounding county. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's what you're seeing. That was just a, was a statistical artifact that made it seem like my home county uh, was doing better 
but it wasn't. Uh, it was just people weren't even able to get to an ER because there wasn't one. Uh, I mean, the closest one is Massac Memorial. Uh, you know, if you're sitting in mounds, it's a, you know, 45 minutes. It's a bit of a drive. Two-lane winding road, 45 minutes. Good luck. And that story repeats itself all across America, especially where we have hospital closures in so many states, you know, uh, Tennessee, Texas, and so on. You know, uh, Secretary Hargan, I wish we could talk forever. I know that you have uh, some very important business to attend to, but before I let you go, I do have a question for you. And I would like to invite you back just to keep us informed and progress. You're welcome at this table anytime that your time allows But I always ask folks, um, you know, why rural matters to them. And it's very clear to me why rural matters to you. I hear it in your voice, the passion that you have for the work that you're doing. But what I want to ask you is if you could answer this question, why should rural America matter to those who live outside of rural America? Because we're really working to help change the narrative about what rural America is. Uh, And so what would you say to those who kind of sweep that under the rug because they don't live there. They don't understand it. Why should it matter to them? Well, look, first and foremost, the 60 million Americans who live in rural America are our fellow citizens. They are our fellow Americans. That's 60 million people. Mm-hmm. One out of every five or six Americans lives in a rural area. But if that's not enough, in other words, an appeal to your fellow citizens or even common humanity, uh, rural Americans produce the food everyone eats, builds the products everyone uses, and make this country the best place on earth to live. And that's why this administration has made rural health, rural Americans a priority, and everyone should as well. I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much. Again, you're welcome back anytime. We look forward to hearing more about the work that you all are doing to help bring some stability. I know after this um, pandemic, has, we're beyond that. I, I, I'm uh, certain we'll have another conversation to have. Um, at this point, uh, I do want to also thank and acknowledge our Rural Matters marketing partners. Um, Secretary Hargan, I know that you're going to have to go. So again, thank you. I really do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good you. you too. So again, I'd like to acknowledge and thank our Rural Matters marketing partners. They are the Center for Rural Affairs, Community Hospital Corporation, Foundation for Rural Service, the Journal of Research in Rural Education, Learning Blade, and TCA, that's the Rural Broadband Association, the National Rural Education Association, the National Rural Health Association, and Ohio Small and Rural Collaborative, and AASA, that's the School Superintendents Association, and of course, the National Rural Assembly and the National Grange. Today, I am thrilled to also announce that Rural Matters has a new marketing partner, an organization very near and dear to my heart, the National Organization of State Offices of Rural Health. NOSOR. NOSOR assists state offices of rural health and their stakeholders in their efforts to improve access to and quality of health care for almost 60 million rural Americans. Now, NOSOR enhances the capacity of state offices and their stakeholders and to do this, they do it through advocacy, leadership development, education, and vital partnerships. NOSOR is proud to have founded National Rural Health Day, which is November 19th. You hear me talking about that a lot on this podcast. It's an annual day of recognition that celebrates the power of rural and honors the efforts of those who are working to address the unique health care needs of America's rural communities. So welcome, NOSOR, to our Rural Matters family. You can learn more about them at NOSOR.org or more information about National Rural Health Day at powerofrural.org. 
All right. If you'd like to learn more information about this podcast or to suggest a guest or a topic, as I said, just email us at podcasttoday at gmail.com. As always, we do appreciate if you would rate this podcast, give us some feedback on iTunes. Um, and also, please consider following us on Twitter at Rural Matters Pod. Or, of course, I'd be very pleased for you to follow me at MRB Impact. Rural Matters is produced by Michael Levin Epstein. I thank you again for listening. We will talk to you next time on Rural Matters. Thank you.